Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. Also, I remember, okay, it's Charles from Brooklyn Nine-Nine who loves, who has this weird obsession with washing hair. Okay. So That fits his character, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Just so people don't think I'm super weird. So he could be a light cord vampire, <laughs> Charles. That would actually fit, if you think about it. Yeah, he could be working at, at Thomas' salon, for sure. I think Charles's white court nature would be like he gets off on friendship or something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. What's up, serial killers? This is Steven and Ben in Phantology. We're back with another Dresden review. We're talking book nine, White Knight, this time. So we just recently recorded our review of Peace Talks, which came out last week. Uh, that was a big success. We recorded with Mike's book reviews. And we're going back now in time to record with Ben, who is still on his first read through of the series. So Ben, how's it going? How are you liking Dresden as it stands? And more importantly, are you going to be caught up in time for Battleground in two months? Yeah, I mean, I'm enjoying Dresden more and more. So that's a relief. There was a time where I thought that I was going to stop reading it because of everything that happened with Molly, but I've powered through that and it's gotten better. I might make it for Battleground. I'm not sure. I kind of had to actually slow my reading of Dresden down because I was getting too far ahead of where we were at on the podcast. So we'll see if I can power through it and get get caught up for Battleground. Yeah, we're going to try our best to remedy that by getting these reviews out. So I think you've also read Small Favor already, so you're through 10, and you have now six to go. So I think I think you can make it. Battleground comes out in two months. I mean, initial reviews on Peace Talks were, it was pretty good, but really kind of a setup, and we're expecting big things from book 17. So I personally am very excited for that one. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to get caught up with, with everything. I mean, there's obviously a lot of chatter on the internet that I kind of have to gloss over so I can avoid spoilers and I'm excited to not have to do that anymore. So yeah, hopefully I can get caught up. Yeah, you are getting into the books where some major spoilers are going to start to happen. I mean, you've got through 10 of them. I think you would agree that things are really starting to happen. Like a, a unified plot is starting to come together for the series as a whole. And I really like that. I mean, I liked the initial ones that were more kind of one-offs. But now that it's gotten to the point where there's like this Black Council organized ad- adversary that's been behind a lot of different things. It's a huge mystery. This is where I really started to get into the books. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it gives you a reason for wanting to read the next one, right? Before it was, you finish the story and you're like, okay, well, I feel content now. I don't have to really read the next one super fast. But but since the Black Council kind of started to appear, it makes me want to find out what's going on with that. And I would say White Knight is an okay book as far as Dresden. So once you and Josh together and and I finish Battleground, we'll have to do a tier list video. I think White Knight was an okay book, but not as good as the ones surrounding it. So I would say better than Proven Guilty. But once you get into Small Favor and Turncoat and Changes, which are the next three, and obviously Deadbeat was awesome. Like these are the real kind of cream of the crop for Dresden. And with this one, I think we're still in a little bit of a lull. I think my favorite thing about this one, and this is light spoilers, I suppose, kind of back of the book spoilers, is that we got more exposure with Elaine. 
which I always like. And I wish, I still think that this is one of my major complaints about Dresden. It seemed like Elaine should have been a bigger part of his life. I mean, she was a big part of his teenage life. Then she disappears. He still constantly thinks about how much he loved her back then. And then she kind of pops back up and nothing really happens from it so far. So that was kind of my main complaint with this one, just kind of right off the bat. Yeah, Elaine is very, she's a very divisive figure in the fan base. I'll say some people are like, you and want more of her. Other people are like, what is the point of this character? Because she is in and out so much. And longtime fans of Phantology will not be surprised to hear Ben say that he likes a character named Elaine. <laughs> You've gotten a lot of flack for your Wheel of Time takes that Elaine Tricand is a top character. So I am not surprised personally that you liked Elaine. It makes a lot of sense. I think I might have been booted off of the Wheel of Time recordings because of that opinion alone. <laughs> Even though you're not on the recordings, just know that your legacy <laughs> in liking Elaine lives on. <laughs> I'm sure it does. So as we get into this one, I think content warning, you're already familiar with Dresden Files if you're listening at this point. And going into spoilers now, so if you haven't read, maybe stop listening. So the book starts with these investigations of suicides that are happening with Murphy. Murphy calls in Harry, who's still contracted with special investigations for these supernatural cases. And Harry looks around, he discovers this biblical quote uh, Exodus twenty two eighteen, which says, suffer not a witch to live along with this body, this, this uh, woman who's been killed. And so we kind of get the sense that there is something going on. And then even more so when we go to visit Butters in the morgue and we find another body and Harry looks at it and gets this vision of like ec- ecstasy around the killing. And so there's the serial killer is what we now conclude. And Molly is a part of this as well. She has this talent to veil herself. So she's got like a permanent invisibility cloak and she's tagging along sometimes without permission from her, her sensei, Harry. It's now been a year, I think, since they've been training together. So their relationship has kind of come along. So, uh, so Ben, what'd you kind of think of this premise to start the book? This was a different one. Actually, I think I might correct you a little bit. It was actually Molly that had the vision of, of ecstasy as you put it. Oh, yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure about that. Which actually this coming off of the last book where where we had the the encounter with with Molly and Dresden, I wasn't a fan of that. And then when I started this book, and that kind of sexual ecstasy vision happened with Molly, that was kind of off putting to me as well. So I actually stopped reading for a bit after that. I don't know, to me, it was again, like kind of this weird sexualization of Molly that I didn't really love. And it kind of involved Dresden and Butters just kind of watching and being intrigued, which I found inherently creepy. So I didn't love that part, but I liked the premise uh-huh. that that somebody's kind of attacking this coven of, of witches. So it was a cool premise overall, but I didn't love the execution of it. Yeah, I mean, Butcher does not shy away from sexualization of the of, of the magical groups here, especially since this is a white uh, a white court of vampires book. There's a lot of that. Sure. So yeah, that that's going to be for sure part of the book. But I, I think your issue is more so that it's with Molly. Right. Who is much younger. Right. Right. Much younger and and have has kind of these two dudes kind of watching her. It just kind of was off-putting to me. That specific scene was. And it, it caused me to put the book down for a little bit. So wasn't a huge fan of that. So as the plot goes on here, 
we learn that there is this community of like small time wizards. They don't have enough power to really uh, be able to defend themselves super well. They're just kind of practitioners. And this community is led by a woman named Anna. And a lot of them have got, have gone missing in the company of people who look a whole lot like Harry and Thomas, his brother. So that is going to be a, an issue because obviously Harry is being falsely blamed here or, or something's going on. And Harry's had enough issues with the wizarding law already that he wants to avoid these types of situations. And then as the plot moves along, uh, Murphy's car blows up. So people are after them. We get a sense of that right away. And then Harry goes to investigate Thomas because of these rumors. And he finds a bunch of weapons and pictures of the dead women in his apartment. The police show up. Harry gets out. So right away, like this is a good one where you get into the action and blame is being put on Harry. He's got to defend himself. And, and there's a lot of uh, momentum towards solving this mystery because he's at risk personally. Yeah, I agree. I love I love how he went into Thomas's apartment and was kind of convinced that Thomas was like a male prostitute, I'm assuming. Is that is that what we're assuming there? Like he gets this call from this woman who calls him like Tomas and and you're just kind of left wondering and then Harry actually pretends to be his lover to kind of get out of the hot water he was in with the police. So that was kind of a fun a fun scene. So, and it kind of made you question what Thomas is doing with his life right now. Yeah. So that's the question I have for you. How much do you trust Thomas as you're reading through these books? Because I find that somewhat of a repeated plot line is we're not sure about Thomas's motivations. Like Thomas may, might be up to no good, but do we ever really doubt him? Like, in my opinion, he seems like a fairly, you know, straightforward, good hearted guy. I mean, obviously he's got the white vampire nature but he's his brother right so like do we really question him or 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 no i don't think that we ever really question his character we might question his ability to kind of put off his carnal character carnal side and maybe he's trying the best he can but maybe it turns out that it's not quite good enough for a second and maybe he's decided to quench his thirst by doing something that is kind of in a moral gray area. So I could believe that, but I never really believed he's like gone to the dark side completely. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, he's got the, the demon, the hunger that could, you know, it's got that potential to take him over. And he's trying his best to kind of live this life in between the two natures. But yeah, he could be falling apart. I agree with that. So as the plot moves along, we get, we get this uh, backstory of something that Harry's been up to over the past year. He's been in New Mexico at this warden camp training younger wizards to become wardens. So it's nice to see that the White Council is actually recruiting for their war. This was a criticism I had uh, previously. And Harry's been a part of this. He's had this incident with ghouls where they killed some younger students and he kind of went berserk on them. And so we get now this idea that Harry has this irrational hatred towards ghouls and will do anything to kill ghouls. So ghouls are a new enemy that we're going to see in this book. And it also develops Lashael a bit more. She's now more of a partner with Harry sharing his mind space. And she helps him realize that there was someone veiled at um, Anna Ash's place. And so Harry goes back there and he finds Elaine, who you mentioned. Ben, Elaine is also investigating. They start talking, but then all of a sudden the building's on fire. And so they, they run out and Harry sees this figure in a gray cloak that seems like he could be this mysterious Harry slash Thomas 
lookalike guy that's been causing the problem. So he so he gives chase. And uh, and I guess like as the action continues here, Ben, like were you still pretty invested in what's going on? Yeah, I would say it was. I actually really enjoyed this scene because of um, Mouse and his ability to do like a super bark to wake up the whole entire apartment complex. That was pretty cool. I enjoy how how Butcher kind of doesn't need to include that detail, but he does. You know, it would be pretty easy to say, oh, everybody was woken up by the fire alarm. But instead, he like includes this really cool new feature about Mouse that maybe is kind of like, it might be like Mouse is kind of like Mary Sue of dogs, but it's still a fun a fun addition to his character. I think there's actually a quote in this book that's like, says something like any stories improved with the inclusion <laughs> of a dog. Yeah, I, I seem to remember that as well. Yeah, breaking breaking the fourth wall a little bit there. And yeah, I, I agree. Butcher does a great job of at any moment that he can, he always includes a fun kind of awesome way of doing something like the fire alarm would be so mundane. So instead, we've got a dog doing a super bark and we love the dog. So it's so it's a small little moment that really adds to the story. Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to like a Brendan Sanderson paraphrase paraphrased quote that's kind of like err on the side of awesome or something like that yeah that's sanderson's third law of magic actually <laughs> yeah so i i think that that was kind of an example of staying true to sanderson's third law of ma- magic so i enjoyed it nerd nerd alert for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's the difference i might remember some tidbit <laughs> you know like exactly what it is <laughs> uh-huh so as the plot continues harry tails this guy the gray cloak to Undertown, Chicago, and he has a decision here. He could have started to throw down with him, but he makes a smart decision actually to tail him to try to get information on the Black Council because he figures there's something more going on here. So rather than throwing down, he tails him and he sees Gray Cloak go and talk with someone who looks a lot like Cowl. If you remember, Cowl is one of the Kemlerites from Deadbeat, one of the necromancers that mysteriously vanished and now he's appeared here we kind of thought he might have been killed but no he's here he seems to be like the master like this is like a Sidious vader moment and as harry sees um as, as harry sees who gray cloak is he gets banished he's actually using little chicago his magical his magical ability to travel throughout chicago in kind of this like spiritual form so anyway, he's banished out and he survives but he might have been killed if not for using Little Chicago, so we get a sense that this is really dangerous. But he does get a, a clue. He heard them talk about Scavis, which is another white court house that I think preys on despair. So it's the vampires. This is another vampire book. And as you learned that it was vampires, do you like this, Ben? Where, where do where do the white court? The white court is one of our frenemy groups. Like, where do they stack up for you in terms of different entities in the Dresden verse? I like the vampires. I think I've said this before. I like the vampires because it seems they like they're pretty easy to track and know they're they're very distinct versus like the fae are kind of very nebulous to me still. So I like this I like this addition. I like the fact that like the different parts of the white court like one feeds on sexual energy, this group feeds on despair. I thought that that's a cool distinction that was made there. And yeah, I I enjoyed it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the vampires are more distinct. I think what Butcher's done is over the course of his series, like in the in the first ones, he kind of built out these groups and said, okay, here's a few different parties that Dresden can associate with. And now kind of more in these middle books, we're like, okay, here's some more details about them. 
and you start to realize maybe who the major players are, what's at stake, et cetera. And then as you get into the later ones, you've got everyone established. And now it's just like, we're going to throw down with as many groups as possible. And so that's where it really starts getting fun. And I think we're almost there. Um, I, I think every series, every review that I do, I tell you, like, you're almost there, you're almost there. But it's like getting better and better, I feel. That's what the series does. Yeah, I agree. Like, now you have kind of the necromancer working with the vampire, working with the black, like, this nefarious, nefarious black court, and they're causing real issues with this coven in Chicago. So it's kind of interweaving, like, the plots that we're more familiar with with like this new story device, which is, which is awesome. That's what, that's what I hoped would start happening with Dresden. Yep, exactly. So now the plot continues and Harry and Elaine still trying to track Thomas. They find him in this boat, the water beetle. Do they call it the water beetle? Yeah. I don't know. I, is that the name? I know that they did it in the next one. I don't remember them doing it in this one. Yeah. So <laughs> along with the blue beetle, maybe Harry just nicknames it, nicknames it the water beetle, but uh, they track Thomas to the boat and there are a bunch of women that are like hidden in the hold of the boat. And so that looks really suspicious. Like Thomas, what are you doing here? But it turns out Thomas was actually trying to help them. He's been tracking kind of the same mystery, I guess. But then another boat appears and ghouls attack. And from the backstory we've got on ghouls, we know that Harry is going to throw down when ghouls are involved. So he does. So um, he uses this ice magic in in a nice way. He, is able to lower the temperature of the water in order to create ice for everyone to escape. But before he can, Magical Wraith from the previous book appears and starts firing on him. Harry gets hit. He falls into the ice. He's got more of these ghoul flashbacks. So interesting that we have all these flashbacks in this book, not something we always get. But then he's saved by Thomas and Elaine. And that's kind of the end of this middle encounter. So how did this uh, little fight go for you, Ben? Yeah. I'm glad that you brought the flashback. I like flashbacks when they're done correctly. I don't like flashbacks when they're used as kind of like this extending of suspense, right? Like this flashback came right when Dresden was like about to, like he was getting fired on and he was about to fall through the ice. And it was a real, like the momentum had been built up for it. And then like suddenly you are transported back into the New Mexico desert where something else terrible happens to him. So I don't love that. Yeah, it kind of it kind of seems like something you'd see in a low-budget movie. Right. Or TV show. Yeah. It's also something you see in the second Gentleman Bastards, where they start off with this suspenseful moment, and then immediately it's a flashback. And I think we're all kind of like united in saying that we hated the way that that was framed. Yeah, I still haven't finished the second book because of I like read that, and then I stopped reading. Yeah, so, so interesting here, but I guess... Uh, we just kind of accept it, and we now know that uh, there's been all this ghoul action in Harry's past over the last year. So Harry survives. Unfortunately, we learned that Anna um, Anna Ash, the small-time leader of the practitioners, was killed by the serial killer. Murphy finds a connection in this order of practitioners. They're called the Ordo, and she finds a connection to Marcone in this group, and so they investigate at this new place called the Velvet Room, which is like Marcone's private gym slash brothel place. Marcone is this gangster, if you don't remember. And find the, they lead to this conclusion that another member of the Ordo named Priscilla is one of the Scabas vampires. And so that's what's going on. She's the killer. And so it looks like it's turned into the Scabas Wraith political battle. And that, that's what's going on. Elaine is also attacked then by 
Priscilla, but we're able to save her and, and get her to the hospital. So this is really kind of leading up to the climax. So it looks like it's been the vampires against vampires the whole time. And Harry's just kind of gotten involved in the middle of it, although it seems a little suspicious still. So we're still trying to figure out exactly what's happening, right? One thing that I really liked that you kind of glanced over was when Anna was killed, how that affected Elaine, how she couldn't process it, like that somebody died on her watch. And I like that because it kind of was reminiscent of Harry in like book one or book two. You know what I mean? Like it was kind of these mental battles that Harry had overcome and now he's helping Elaine overcome. So I enjoyed that. I also enjoyed that because Elaine was so distraught, it kind of made her easier prey for the Scavis. Yeah, it makes sense because they prey on despair and she's really despairing. And so, yeah, nice to just have that all weave in naturally. I also want to call out the fact that like Elaine has a super cool belt chain or something that she's able to expertly use and it kind of gives you, you're like, oh man, I wish Harry could have something cooler than a staff. Look at Elaine over here with her like nunchuck belt thing. Well, come on. He's got a blasting rod too. Don't forget about the blasting rod. Yeah, but I think Elaine, she kind of makes this comment like, oh, stop being so old school or something like that. I don't know. I appreciated it. So I guess the swords are also not enough for you. <laughs> no way. You require something really unique. Yeah, exactly. Well, just some imagination. I feel like this is Butcher like being able to be more imaginative because he has like a solid base, but I enjoyed it. So the next thing that happens is we kind of pause the action and Harry has this extensive conversation with Lachelle about free will and fate, etc. And I think this is one of the themes of this book is this relationship between Harry and Lash. And it's going to be pretty important towards the end. So do you remember this conversation specifically? Or like, what are your kind of thoughts on their relationship? Oh, yeah, I remember this conversation very well. And I really like how he basically is convincing this small part of this basically demigod, right? That's kind of what we consider fallen angels to be, that she has worth and that she can change and that her actions are her own actions for good or ill. And that even if she has chosen incorrectly in the past, she can choose better in the future. So I I thought that this was kind of Harry passing on his whole wisdom to this entity that is then able to use that for her own advantage. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoy a lot of these types of conversations in Dresden. You get a lot um, of just kind of Harry's internal musing. You get a lot of Michael passing on information to Harry. They've always got this conflict around faith. Harry struggles with that. So Harry seems like a pretty fleshed out person. Like he's had struggles in the past and then he's grown from those. And now he's taken what he's learned and he's passing on to this literal demon. So those are all really interesting, seem really organic seem really natural. Like there's been some conversations that have really hit home for me and caused me to kind of uh, reflect on my own life about that. Yeah, totally. I agree. And I think one kind of defining trait of, of Harry is that he, he doesn't think anybody is beyond the scope of saving. And I all kind of go back on that a little bit, but like, for example, Molly, he, he's like, okay, I'm going to try and save Molly Lash. He's going to try and save Lash. Now, if somebody is threatening him, he has no qualms about killing him. Kind of like looking back on previous books with the with the fallen, if they're like threatening on him, he's not he's not kind of like Michael where he's going to give them unlimited chances. He there's like a level of realism that Harry has, but also a level of faith in humanity's ability to change. 
So I think it's a cool, it's a cool character trait that he has. Yeah, I think it's a good character trait. I think it's something we see quite often with these brooding protagonist types, like your Randall Thor or your Kaladin from Stormlight. Like they all kind of want to save everyone, but they can't. So they've got to deal with that and rectify it. But at the same time, they are these awesome warriors that wield magic and and smite evil. So it's not something we haven't seen before, but that doesn't mean that it's not done well here. Yeah. So now we kind of get into the climax here. We're going to support the Wraith family of white court vampires because Thomas is part of them and they're going to go against the, the Scavis people. And so uh, Warden Ramirez is also on hand and Harry and Ramirez and Molly uh, show up to this vampire conclave in the deeps, which is like this cave compound out in Wraith land. And Harry calls out Magical Wraith and House Malvora and the Scavis guys for violation of the Magical Accords because they're preying on these practitioners, which is not allowed. And so then we get into this duel. And this duel kind of extends into a longer climax. But the, the duel starts when they are able to defeat Magical. But then uh, Vittorio Malvora, another one of these vampires, calls out to a, a master, a, a mysterious master, and these super powerful ghouls appear. So if we didn't have enough ghoul fighting before, we've got more now. Harry then brings in Thomas and Murphy and a bunch of uh, Marcones hires through the Never Never. And then the entire deeps area starts to just throw down. And so this is some of the funner action. Like I was saying, like now we really get these large scale conflicts and uh, Butcher does a great job of writing all this action, I think, at least. How is how did this go for you, Ben? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I especially enjoyed Marcone's presence there. It was cool because Harry had like, you know, said, okay, we're just gonna extract them. I forget what the initial mission was, but there was a crossroads where Harry was like, okay, we're gonna go rescue these people. And Marcone is like, no, that wasn't the initial assignment. And then Harry Harry's like, well now it is. And Marcone's like, well, who do you think I am? And Harry says something like, somebody that's not gonna let innocent people die. And then Marcone like pauses for a second and says, Yeah, I'm in or something. So I thought it was like now I consider Marcone to be a good guy. I don't know. Like he's like for the past few books, he's done nothing but good. So am I supposed to believe that he's still a villain or that he's he's willing to do bad things, but he's still overall a good person? I don't know. Yeah, Marcone is interesting. He's for sure a frenemy. He's kind of the devil we know, and Harry Struck deals with him in the past. But at the same time, I don't think you ever get past the idea that he's really out for his own good. So if there were, if some instance was to come up where it would serve his purposes to go against Harry, I don't think he's hesitating to go forward with that mission. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But like, he might go against Harry, but if there's not a reason to... If he's faced between choosing good or choosing ambivalence, he chooses good, which you cannot say about every character, you know? So I, I enjoyed that part. And I also enjoyed kind of all the different aspects of this battle, how there's kind of like this endless supply of orcs, basically, in the form of ghouls that can just be kind of smashed to pieces and and how that mm-hmm. kind of seeing how each of our characters can kind of do their own small piece to help Harry win the day. It, it was fun. Yeah, we've got this endless supply of cannon fodder that allows each of our characters to have their moment in the limelight. Eventually, we get to the point where Vittorio seems to be pretty unstoppable 
And Harry is basically at the point where he's going to sacrifice himself. But uh, Lash tries to come in and say, Harry, like, if you accept my power, I can help you defeat Vittorio. But Harry says, I'm not going to do that. There's no way I'm not going to cross that line ever. And so he refuses her, even though um, Vittorio is like using this outsider, which we've got some hints over in the past. So the situation is very dire. And Lash makes this decision, which is set up really well from the conversations they've had earlier in the book. She sacrifices herself, her, her power, I guess like her um, substance in whatever form it exists there as part of Harry's mind to save him. And so he's able to disrupt Vittorio's power over him. Harry shoots off Vittorio's hand with a shotgun, which gives him enough time to open a portal for everyone to escape. And so then the final thing happens. But before we go there, like, did you feel like this sacrifice from Lash? Like, was that set up enough for you? Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I remember it really well. I liked it. Yeah, I really liked it. And it, it proved that there is some type of stakes here, right? Because you, this is kind of like the first main character, I guess, if you can carry Lash a main character to kind of be written out of the series, you know? So I, I appreciate that. Right. Like, get a get a permanent death, you would say. Like, other characters kind of come and go. But yeah. As we understand it, she's gone. Yeah, it's kind of like, at this point. Yeah, and I guess he could bring her back if he wanted to. I'm sure that there's a way, but it's kind of one thing that's annoyed me throughout the books is that Butcher does a really great job at writing characters out with a way that he can write them back in if he wants to, whereas this didn't seem as as possible. Well, Lashale still exists in the Denarian coin, which Harry gives to Father Fort Hill at the end. So there's nothing to say that someone else might take up this coin in the future. Right. But he was, in my understanding, he was communicating with this kind of other part of Lashael that was kind of just specific to him. Yeah, I'm not sure. You do get some more details on this going forward, which I'm not going to spoil yet. But that would be a good question to kind of see what happens there. I think there's room for more exploration into the future. And I guess we will see. So another question I had for you was, what is your understanding of the outsiders at this point? Because Lashiel says Vittorio is using an outsider. Harry, there's hints that Harry has like some kind of power over them in a way that no one else does. And there's been hints in the past that there's this outsider called he who walks behind that has influenced Harry. So what do you understand as a first time Dresden reader? Then like, were you just like, what the heck is this? Or did it seem to like connect some dots for you? Most of me was like, okay, what the heck is this? With the understanding that there's something special about Harry, like around his birth or something around, uh, something about him that gives him some extra power. But it's not enough of a mystery for me to want to like think deeply about it or search the internet for things about it. So I don't really care about that part of it. Like I'm more, I'm way more interested in the black court mystery than Harry's innate power mystery. The Black Council mystery. Sure, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, that, that's a decent take. And you'll, I'm interested to see what you continue to think of this as you go through more of the books. So the ending of the climax happens as Harry opens this portal, everyone escapes, but then Cowl appears again. So Cowl seems way bad. He really seems to be connected to the Black Council in some way. He appears, he closes Harry's portal which traps Harry and Lara Wraith, the leader of the the Wraith clan, Thomas's sister. uh, We've seen her in previous books. So they are trapped here. But in order to escape, Harry uses a nice, clever 
use of his shield magic, he creates this bubble around them and then everything explodes and they basically get like shot out of a cannon, out of the deeps, out of the cave, and they survive as everything else falls apart. So I thought this was a clever use of the magic to escape. What do you think? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I absolutely love this scene. This is like the sexualization that I can enjoy. You know what I mean? It's like Harry needs like this burst of of energy to wield his magic. And so you have like the supermodel kisses him and they're making out as they're flung through the air, like bowling over ghouls in his magically protected cannonball. Like it's awesome. So I I really I like that part. Yeah, I feel like Lara is a character that I really like, maybe just because she's hot. (laughs) But I think as the books go on, I really enjoy Lara. I think she's smart. And I mean, she's a total 10. Yeah, very capable. But uh, I'm interested to see what you think um, as as the series moves on. She was a a larger character in the most recent book, and I, I enjoyed her role there as well. So in this one, we realized that uh, Lara, speaking of being smart, she was the one that manipulated both white courthouses into this conflict. So she's really responsible. And Harry coerces her into playing, uh, paying a wear guild, which is basically like blood money to the uh, victims of the family, which is something that the supernatural beings just kind of do. They're like, oh, we squashed a few mortals. Let's give them some money. And then Marcone, who you talked about liking, becomes a Lord Baron, a, a signatory of the Unsealy Accords, which is like the agreement that all the uh, supernatural sign to not blow up the world. Now we have a mortal signing it. First mortal ever. So Marcone, you know, he's up there. He's, he's really making a name for himself. He's established now this like really strong holding as part of the supernatural community. He's seen a niche for himself and he's really carving it out strongly. I like that part. I thought it was a clever way to expand Marcone's role. And I also love how how Harry like went from being like like making out with Lara to like dropping her like she was hot when he figured everything out. Is it Larry or Laura? I don't know. Her reaction to that, to just kind of being dropped like that was was pretty amusing. Audiobook says Lara, so I'm going with okay, Lara. Lara. Yeah, I appreciated that. And one thing about this book that I, I can kind of criticize, I felt like the rising action and the falling action around the climax was very like short-lived. You know, like when they all kind of showed up at the at the Wraith estate, I was like, oh, I guess this is it. So I don't know. There, it was. It felt kind of shallow uh, in that in that front. So they were just ready to throw down too much, and you didn't feel like it was built up. Enough. Yeah, exactly. I felt like there's a few different people at play, and then it just kind of happened without really understanding the motivations with everybody. That's fair. I think uh, you know, as the series goes on, you maybe get some more motivations. But I would say these other white court houses are a little bit smaller players on the stakes, so you don't necessarily need to understand all the details there to enjoy the larger story um, a few more loose ends so we have elaine who's going to be setting up this paranet for all of these smaller practitioners so they're better protected in the future we learn about marcone's secret kind of he wanted to use the shroud to try to the shroud of turin back in death masks he wanted to use it to save this woman who had taken a bullet for him back in the day so kind of like you said ben like he's really kind of got a heart of gold underneath it and you do kind of get the sense that maybe he's a good guy, but we're not sure 100%. Um, Lash is totally gone. Harry gives up her coin to Father Fort Hill. We reconcile with Thomas, who is now in hair school, and he is feeding his demon by getting off on women's hair, I guess. That's how he feeds his his, his vampire side. 
a little bit. But hey, it works for him. It's a good compliment. What's this sitcom? Man, what is it that that talks about this character is a weird fetish with washing hair? What is it? Somebody's got to let me know in the comments because I forget what it is, but it's funny. They all talk about washing hair. Yeah, I can't help you there. But I, hey, man, it sounds really funny. I, I got to watch, right? <laughs> <Shut up>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's pretty much the story. Any more loose ends for you or did you have a worst of the best to wrap things okay, up? Yeah, yeah. I got, a, I got a shout out and then a worst of the best here. Shout out to Ramirez, who's the biggest womanizer virgin that I know. I thought that was super funny that we find that out about him. Um, like he talks like such a big game to Harry and Harry's always kind of like, man, I wish I was as good as with the ladies as you are. And then, we, then like Lara, I think they soul gaze or something. And she says that he's a virgin. So that was pretty funny. Uh-huh. So shout out to my man Ramirez. And then I think the worst of the best, like we talked about before was Thomas's role in all of this. It just seemed like he would be much more involved as a vampire himself, as well as the fact that he ends up being like this kind of lame, like hair washer person. I, I don't know. I, I expected something a little bit more grandiose for Thomas. Yep, that's my, Thomas is my worst of the best for this book. I'll say my worst of the best is what's going on with the war, with the with the Red Court and some of these larger Things. I mean, I'm fine with some of the Dresden books being more one-offs, focusing on smaller conflicts, but I really liked once we got into this idea that there is this Black Council and they're unified and there's like this building tension, building momentum, I always wanted the books to continue to grow and grow and grow and not ever take a step back. I feel like this was another step back after Proven Guilty. I mean, I guess Proven Guilty like introduced the idea of the Black Council, but this one, like, it, it seemed like there could have been more of a conflict builder, but instead it was like this minor thing focused on on the white court vampires, which I understand is necessary to build that faction up more. But I just wanted more. I, I, I guess I always I really like these building like worlds colliding type of things. And once I saw the potential for that, I wanted it in a big way. And I wasn't super satisfied with that until a few books later. So that's my worst of the best, but I can't be too critical because the series gets there. I mean, this was back when books were coming out every year. So, I mean, it, that's not even fair for me to be critical of, uh, of the tensions not mounting fast. Enough. I love when you start debating yourself over the worst of the best. It, it, that's exactly what we want with this segment. Yeah, I think I just talked myself out yeah. of it. <laughs> also, I remember, okay, it's Charles from Brooklyn Nine-Nine who loves, has this weird obsession with washing hair. Okay. So... That fits his character, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Just so people don't think I'm super weird. So he could be a white court vampire, (laughs) Charles. That would actually fit if you think about it. Yeah. He could be working at at Thomas's salon for sure. I think Charles's white court nature would be like he gets off on friendship or something. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. So that's that's a wrap for uh, for White Knight. I think this was a a quicker episode because this was maybe a, a quicker book for us but the next one small favor i expect bigger things for that one because that's one of my favorite dresdens yeah and i guess just to kind of give ourselves a shout out we wrapped up today actually the day that we're recording this our top three fantasy settings poll on twitter so hit us up on twitter if you want to see the winner of that so that was that was a fun fun thing that just kind of completed in the phantology universe yeah check out phantology books on social media at phantology books at www.phantologybooks 
patreon.com. Check out our, our Patreon. Join on Discord to let us know what we did wrong. We are sitting at 99 Discord users right now, so we're looking for that magical number 100. Hopefully by the time the episode comes out, that person will have arrived. And by the time this episode comes out, we'll probably also be looking for an August uh, poll. So I think we're talking about doing like best fantasy duos. So so your top three best fantasy duos like Frodo, Sam, for example. I mean, and you can go from there. But look for that poll and, we, and we'll do that and offer prizes for the winner. So Phantology is fun and, uh, and thanks for being a part of our fan base. So thanks, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. All right, we'll catch everyone next time. See you guys.